Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yes, that's billion with a B. (laughs) Great, that's nothing to do with anything. How's it going, everybody? Uh, that's Lala with an L. <laughs> Lori Lightfoot and Lala. Uh, before we get going, I just want to give a shout out to Rex Hupke. Great column today about Lori Lightfoot and Lala. We'll be talking about that probably. Uh, probably not today though. All right. Well, hey, you know, hey, uh, Miles is with us. Our former uh, intern, or what did we call editor? Our former editor, editor. Miles. Yeah. You went to Lollapalooza, right? <laughs> That sounds like not a huge this year. Not this year. No, oh. I'm not going to my Lollapalooza. Oh, <laughs> Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, August 3rd is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor are sponsors, as well as the Chicago Teachers Union. That's true. They're sponsors. What up, Stacey Davis Gates? Jesse Sharkey, how you doing? Everything good? All right. Uh, thanks to those sponsors. And of course, today's show is brought to you by Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and even what kind of pot to smoke. Go check it out. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. You'll also find columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky and so much more, including how you can help the program. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Find out how you can become a binhead. It is Tuesday, August 3rd, and live from my apartment and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, a star-studded lineup. (laughs) Ace Attorney, Legal Eagle, JC, Jim Coogan returns along with Miles Porter and Mr. City Council, David Glowatz. Oh, someone is trying to get into the meeting. Hey, it's Jim Coogan. All right. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this blog or returns Tuesday, and here's why. Great weekend. You have a good weekend, D? Yeah, it was good. Good weekend. You were picking peaches in Alton. Oh, yeah. I get my peaches down in Alton. That's that shit. He gets his peaches picked in Alton. Wait, that didn't sound right. I was picking peaches here in Chicago. I didn't really do that, D. Mostly sat around following free agency basketball, free agency. Lorenzo Ball is a Chicago Bull. Repeat, Lorenzo Ball is a Chicago Bull. I want to thank Frank for texting me that yesterday. Frank, you broke the story to me. All right? I didn't know about it until you sent me that text. I immediately texted it to, like, everybody I knew who I thought would care and spent the better half of the the rest of the three hours debating on text whether it was a good idea for the Bulls. We're going to do a whole show on basketball free agency near the end of the week. Lonzo Ball, right? Yeah, what did I say? Lorenzo Ball. Oh, my God. Let's just edit that out, D, when we do <laughs> Like we ever edit anything out. Anyway, Lonzo Ball is the new bull. 
I uh, woke up to discover that Rob Blagojevich is back in the news. Yes, indeed. Former Governor Rob Blagojevich, as you all know, he was sentenced to what was it, I believe, 14 years in the federal penitentiary for essentially taking bribes. He sold Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat for campaign contributions, more or less. He shook down the CEO of Children's Memorial to the tune of 25 grand in campaign contributions and held up a bill of racetrack policies for about $100,000 in contributions. Real sleazy stuff. Looked like he was about to stay in prison for another four or five years or so. And then in a Hail Mary, Donald Trump commuted Blago's sentence and let him out of prison. This is back in February of 2020. Dennis and I love back in this pre-pandemic. We love playing that clip of Blago returning home and being greeted by all his uh, supporters. I got I, I really mean the about Trump about that's right. <laughs> Trumpocrat, that's right. Yes, I love that. Trumpocrat, that's right. Yes, uh, I mean what I'm about to say. I believe that Rod Blagojevich is one of the most remarkable individuals I've ever followed. Uh, he charges through life with an impressive, I have to say, impressive amount of shameless confidence. I can only wish in a million years that I had his sense of entitlement and willfulness. Now he's back in court at the same federal building where he was prosecuted. Quote, I don't like this place, he told reporters. I have only unhappy memories associated with this building, unquote. He's asking the federal judge to undo the provision that bars him from running for statewide office. It was a provision that was established as part of his impeachment way back in 2009, I want to say. He's also seeking an injunction to immediately allow himself to run. Man, that is chutzpah. He says it's unconstitutional. That politicians cannot tell voters who they can or cannot vote for. And I will now quote the lawsuit. Quote, allowing voters to decide who to vote for or who not to vote for is not adverse to the public interest. It is the public interest. End quote. Like I said, the man is shameless. Was shaking down the CEO of Children's Memorial Hospital in the public interest? Anyway, neither here nor there. Each matter I understand must be adjudicated separately. I got mixed feelings about this case. On the one hand, there's part of me that never, ever, ever wants to see Rob Blagojevich running for office again. But on the other hand, he does have a point. Quote, does Springfield have the right to tell citizens you cannot vote for this person? That's how one observer framed it to the Sun-Times. And when I think about it in the abstract, I don't know the answer to that question. The whole matter of Rob Blagojevich has been shady from the get-go. Not just the act of shaking down the hospitals for the contributions or shaking down politicians to get uh, the appointment to fill the Obama vacancy, but the way the feds have behaved, aggressively going after him, listening to his calls, and hitting him with a 14-year prison sentence for what the, what the, I would say, is pretty routine in the state of Illinois, shaking people down uh, for campaign uh, contributions, not openly uh, shaking them down, but more or less understanding what's being swapped. I believe they're punishing Blago because he was openly contemptuous of them. Uh, so, yeah, I got mixed feelings. Then there's this political reality. Blago is now a Trumpster. I'd say he's Donald Trump's number one ally in I'm the state of Illinois. The trouble Chris, that's right. Yes, indeed. He's a Trumpocrat. If the judge rules that he could run for office, he would probably turn right around and run for governor as a Republican. And I think he would win. As I like to say, MAGA controls the Republican Party and Trump controls MAGA. If Trump comes out strong for Blago, I think Blago, MAGA would vote for Blago. They see him as the same victim of federal overreach that is going after their hero, Donald Trump. 
Just imagine that. Rod Blagojevich running against J.B. Pritzker. I love to see all the so-called moderate Republicans in the state who are so chicken of taking on Trump work their way around that one. In fact, I like to see all Democrats who are in trouble with the law flip to MAGA. Ed Burke, Michael Madigan, Danny Solis. Let the Republican Party fill with the miscreants from the Democratic Party. If you're going to roll in the mud, Republicans might as well get filthy, filthy dirty. We got a great show today. I'm looking at my first two guests, Jim Coogan. Ace Attorney is going to restrain himself from commenting on my what I just had to say. It could be the top uh, subject of a whole conversation. Jim Coogan and me talking about the feds, Blagojevich. Does he have the right to run for office again? The merits of his uh, lawsuit. And Miles Porter. Uh, the podcaster and uh, former editor of this show. And uh, we set up a show about two weeks ago with these gentlemen. Uh, Jim Coogan, in addition to being an ace attorney, is a diehard White Sox fan, has been following them his entire life. This year it's paying off. Uh, Miles Porter is a diehard Cub fan, although he he says he also likes the White Sox. He's a baseball player himself. He has his own podcast. And one day I predict uh, he will be on ESPN doing commentary. And we'll say, we knew him way back when. And so uh, the reason I brought these guys on for uh, a brief conversation is because the papers were filled with stories. Uh, I think it was starting Friday about the Cubs selling off all their players, White Sox making a deal. Uh, And we're on the E, by the way, of the White Sox-Cubs series, which I despise. I'll get into that later. I cannot stand the White Sox-Cubs series for many reasons. Uh, but I had to bring these two gentlemen on because I wanted to pick the brains to see what to make sense out of these trades. Does it, does it make sense on any level uh, for the Cubs to dump three of their greatest players of the last 10 years? So, Miles, welcome back to the show. Jim, welcome back to the show. And um, I'm going to start with you, Miles, since uh, you're more or less the Cub fan uh, in this equation. Anthony Rizzo, uh, Bryant. Uh, Javi Baez, Craig Kimbrell, all gone. And uh, Miles, when I look at the players that the Cubs acquired in return, I see there's only three that I could say have a chance of being steady contributors on the major league level. Is this just uh, a dumping of salaries, or, Miles, do you think the Cubs uh, know what they're doing? Well, I think think really the Cubs – don't exactly know what they're doing at the moment. Kind of going based off of uh, Jed Hoyer's comments, he doesn't exactly know if this is a reset or a rebuild. And there's a big difference between resetting and rebuilding. Now, I, I genuinely believe that the Cubs made a good decision to send these players to winning teams, get back into a winning culture, you know, do what you do your job for another city. I think that's incredible. Their debuts for all their teams that they've all gone to has been incredible and very painful to watch. Um, my my issue currently uh, with this entire scenario is I think to a certain extent we could have kept at least one of them, specifically Anthony Rizzo. I know that there were issues between the front office and Javi, KB, and Riz on trying to find something uh, that works for both them and the organization when it comes to signing their contracts and extending on how much money and whatever. I felt like there could have been a better job of finding some middle ground with that. So I don't think the Cubs really know where they're where they're heading right now. They don't know if it's a reset 
or rebuild. I think really uh, the moves they make in the winter, uh, who are they going to bring back? I really don't see Chris Bryant coming back to the Cubs uh, just due to his enjoyment of being in San Francisco and how he says being there is very enticing and just the connections that he has there. Um, We'd love to see Javi and Riz come back. I I think really the offseason is going to tell a lot of where this team is going to go. Well, I, uh, Jim Coogan, I'm listening to Miles there. I, I can't see, I'm with you, Miles. I don't think the Cubs know what they're doing. And, uh, I know one thing, they don't want to pay these salaries. Yeah. Uh, and so they're just dumping salaries as far as I could tell. Now, I remember when the White Sox went down this path, Jim Coogan, they received players when they started with Chris Sale, a great pitcher for the White Sox who traded to the Red Sox. They received players that were stars in the Red Sox minor league organization that pretty much everyone in baseball said, oh, my goodness, this guy could be excellent. And, for instance, when uh, when the White Sox traded uh, the pitcher to the Cubs, uh, they got um, <laughs> they got some serious talent for the Chicago Cubs. So it always seemed like the White Sox, when they make a deal to unload players, they get quality players in return. Jim Coogan, I know you're a White Sox fan, but you're a diehard baseball fan as well. Do you see any quality players that the Chicago Cubs got in exchange for Rizzo, Bryant, Baez, and Craig Kimbrell? Well, so I, and I, I totally sympathize with Miles as far as uh, the Rizzo trade. I think that was the one that people really just didn't expect to be part of this um, dumping situation. And we all, you know, our, our little uh, baseball show from a few weeks ago, we predicted that this is exactly where the Cubs were going to be. And, you know, you look at, I was reminded just reading something before we got on this, this show uh, it was taking some quotes from Jed Hoyer and, and from the rest and from uh, Kyle Hendricks and some other people taking stock of where they're at and where this has gone. The quote from before the season when they were explaining why they hadn't re-signed any of these guys was that they were in the midst of suffering biblical losses. <laughs> I always have some skepticism when it comes to the way that team owners frame their finances, uh, their cash flow, you know, particularly when they're explaining to fans why they haven't spent money, or uh, I'm sure this is something that Ben would love to talk to and on uh, as a political matter when they're coming to municipalities with their hands out asking for, uh, you know, public money to finance their private for-profit operation uh, when building a stadium or infrastructure or something like that. But as far as the players that they received, look, Nick Mandrigal's seems like he's a good player. I watched him for a while for the White Sox. That's that's the Kimbrel trade. Honestly, if you look at it, to give away a closer, closers being, no matter how good Craig Kimbrel's been this season, it's a fickle position. Relief pitchers come and go. They 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 have highs, they have lows. Guys who you think are going to be an all star for five, ten years. Two years into it, all of a sudden they just fall off the map. You don't even remember what happened to them. Now they're they're a secondary setup guy in Atlanta, and it's like, what happened to that guy? So that's a pretty with the compare, especially compared to position players with very established track records. In Kimbrel's case, he's been very good before. Then he really got he was struggling mightily, and then suddenly this year he's he's captured something that he didn't even have in the past. So getting but getting a lot for a closer for a, a back-end relief pitcher, that's a pretty good move. I think that 
because Mandrigal, I don't think anybody's expecting him to be a dominant second baseman. He's never going to be a power hitter. But if he can be a 350, 450 on-base percentage guy, getting on base constantly at the, at the top of a lineup, he's quick, and he, seemed, he looked very good um, defensively at second base. So there's a quality baseball player that may be an all-star here and there and, and is probably somebody with some longevity. I don't know as much about the. I know that the pitcher that they got from the Yankees was highly rated in their system. I didn't really get into the weeds as far as you know where his projections are supposed to be. Um, and I don't. I don't really know what they got from the Mets because I didn't have a chance to process. That. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't think it was much. Um, and I'm, I'm actually just knowing the Mets system. I don't know what they would have because they, they're at the cycle of having brought a bunch of guys up in the last couple seasons. And they were trying to restock this year to compete, which they are. They're actually, you know, they're presently in first place in a very mediocre National League East. So I think it's going to be hard for fans to be really satisfied with this long term. But then you have the issue that Miles brought up. A lot of these, the, the, these players are, their contracts are expiring after this season. So with the short-term rentals, you know, there's, there's always a debate over how much you're going to get. If you kept them and they left in free agency, you get compensatory draft picks. Um, so there, there's, it's hard to lose in baseball when you lose a guy. That's kind of a nice backstop for the teams. But I don't, I don't know that this batch of acquisitions is going to be looked at like in three years, and they'll be saying, "Well, this is this was how we built the 2024-25 seasons was on this." dump of, of guys who yeah they were the cornerstones of it you know you look at it from the other perspective if these players are so good and you're dumping half your team then why was the team more you know and then we come back to where we were at with the last show which is why well, trade away you darvish at this stage in his career when he was just revving back up from you know he had a, kind of a mediocre 2019 if i recall correctly but he was great last season he's been very good for the padres and it's like if they just kept him and added maybe one more starting pitcher, why wouldn't they have been competing in the National League Central when they already did for the first two months? So that then it just kind of gets confusing as to what the overall strategy here is. Cubs management claims that they made reasonable offers to these guys and they were just stiff-armed. So I'm right, not exactly the skepticism as far as you know finances and how much uh, they're really willing to spend and then what their strategy is. All right, so I have a mix on this one, gentlemen. Uh, I'm, I root for the Cubs and the White Sox and have my entire life, basically. Uh, and so, uh, Jim, you'll smile when you hear this. When, when I look at these trades, I can only say definitively that there are two players that I can tell you right now are quality Major League Baseball players. And that's magical and, uh, to a lesser degree, Cody Hoyer, who is the relief pitcher of the Sox set. So I look at this, I'm like, how come my beloved White Sox are the only team in baseball that had to give up quality to the Cubs to get these players? The Yankees just like, they, Miles, I think it was the number ninth guy was in their system. Not, in other words, they didn't even have to give up the eighth guy. You know, there are eight guys yeah, in their system yeah. better than the guy they dumped on the Cubs. The, the, the Giants, I think I saw it was like the 12th and the 20th. I'm free. In other words, utterly obscure minor league ball players who probably will never make the majors except, I can guarantee you, 
Cody Hoyer, who's already pitching and doing well for the Cubs, probably the best reliever they got right now, Miles, and yeah. Nick Madrigal, who will be their starting second baseman next year when he comes back for his hamstring. My beloved, I lose both ways. <laughs> my Cubs, <laughs> my White Sox give up two players that they're going to need. Uh, well, definitely uh, Hoyer this year. And the Cubs just let yeah. him go. I'm telling you, Miles, the only thing worse with being a Cubs fan is also rooting for the White Sox at the same time. Whenever they make a trade, it's just like bad news. <laughs> anyway, Miles, uh, to picking up on uh, what Jim Coogan said. Yeah. Are these guys overrated? Is Rizzo, a Rizzo Bryant bias overrated? I mean, to his point, we talked about this last time. If they're so good, why did the Cubs lose 11 games in a row and fall out of contention? You know, I think I think the I wouldn't say that they are they are overrated by any means. I would say looking back on that complete uh I don't even know what to call that 11 game losing streak was. It just it ruined everything. It, it ruined everything. We wouldn't be in this in this position right here. Uh, had we not lost all those games. I, I believe that it's, it might be a bit of a bit of a culture thing. Um, I, I don't I don't know how burned out they were. Maybe a change of scenery is better for them right now at the moment. I just think that the core to a certain extent wasn't working the way uh, it was since 2016. Um, statistically, all of these players, their trends were going down since the World Series. But granted, 2021 has been a much different season uh, than, the, than the other seasons. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that they're overrated. I wouldn't say that they're overrated. I think maybe fed up, frustrated, kind of tired, probably a little bit tired of uh, how things were going this year. I think, I think really the mentality for the, these core players that were gone, um, I, think, I think they weren't mentally in it as much as they were prior, and it affected their game on the field. All the outside noise going on and the pressure of, you know, trying to snap that losing streak, the pressure of trying to get back into the win column, trying to get back to where the Cubs were, that we know that the, the Cubs play to, you know, their level. I think that pressure had gotten to them more than they're willing to admit. I think it was more of a mental game as opposed to their actual ability because we're seeing them strive on their new teams right now. I think yeah. it's just the mental part. Now Chris Bryant, you know, he's not worried about this conversation anymore. He even said it. It's way more easier for him now. Now that the outside noise is how has died down for now. There's still the offseason and KB's gonna have to deal with whatever whatever the media is gonna say, whatever teams are gonna throw at him. That's all gonna some part of it. But I do believe that now that they're in a little bit of a different situation, it's kind of gonna be a little bit more easier for them to relax a little bit, just go out there and play, and then we see them play to their full potential. I, th I really believe it was just a mental thing for them. Uh, I'm actually with you on this one, uh, Miles. And uh, we've been talking on the show about uh, Simone Biles, uh, the great gymnast uh, who had to walk away from uh, some Olympic events because uh, she couldn't confront. She she was, uh, was dealing with mental depression, and uh, she just couldn't be at her best for it. Uh, no. The events, her life was in danger. Some of those flips that you have to do require such precision. Uh, that she really had to walk away from it. She got a lot of heat from uh, Trump supporters, but I was with her in this one. And I see a similarity, Miles and Jim, when it comes to the Cubs. I thought in 2016 when the Cubs finally won the World Series that would break that psychological barrier that uh, put so much pressure on them and, and kept them from achieving what they wanted. But I think in some ways it magnified it. I look at the – and I think, and it's very similar with the Bears. Uh, <laughs> the, the 1986 Bears won the Super Bowl. <laughs> 
uh, and they haven't won a Super Bowl since. And every every time Jim uh, Coogan, it seems like they're approaching greatness, they collapse. And I said, I'm like, what? I think there's something about the pressure in Chicago, Jim, uh, particularly with the Cubs and, and the Bears, but to deal with the Cubs, it's like all the, it's like this mass mental vibration of negativity that comes down where cub fans like starting in august start going oh this is it we're gonna lose you know and it's just the talk the chatter the tweets it comes on and it's so much the players chris bryant's like i can't take it anymore let me get out of town by the way it's starting to happen with my beloved bulls uh as well but i'll put that aside jim do you think uh, that there is just too much pressure on the Chicago Cubs, uh, that and that's what's keeping them from achieving. Well, culture matters. I mean, these are human beings. Obviously, you know, if you're a statistics nerd, you just see the numbers on paper. They're bigger than life, so you kind of just forget about the humanity of it. But culture does matter. We spent time in the last show talking about the White Sox clubhouse culture and all the expectations or the concerns that how thing how the team would adjust to bringing in a, a manager who'd have been out of the game for 10 years who's you know no in Tony Russo who's known to be kind of an old school unwritten rules tough baseball guy you know the Cubs I, I would say this there ha, there may have been a decline in terms of the uh, the loose fun culture that Joe Madden really, I know, was a big part of him uh, psychologically managing those Cubs of the 2016. Absolutely, absolutely. That, that had sort of slipped away. I don't. I guess I don't know exactly the reasons why, but I, I believe, at least I, I think, that the purpose of uh, hiring David Ross for that job was that he was a guy who was part of those teams, but also well respected by players and a guy who can connect with players. And certainly having only retired a couple of years ago could appreciate those pressures and maybe do something about it. I don't really get the sense that that's how it went so far in 2016, but you know, maybe the players that we're talking about here who have high-level accomplishments, all-star or MVP caliber seasons under their belts, definitely for Baez and Bryant, for sure. Um, Maybe when you get to the point where the team is deciding that they've made their best offer and this is reasonable money, and if you're not going to take it, then we don't care, you know, maybe that plays into it. And they just don't feel like this is the place that they're respected. It's hard to, as a fan, to sit there and think, well, are you sure that $180 million isn't respect? But at the same time, if that's the if that's your earning capacity and you could do the same thing playing for the San Francisco Giants or the Yankees or whoever, then it kind of is. And, and honestly, no matter – I don't really know. I kind of don't assume that there's much of a relationship between the Ricketts owners and the players themselves. So I'm not sure what other way you're – like if you're the player, how else are you feeling that you're respected in that, in that environment other than – What's the line from Jerry Maguire? You know, show me the money. Mm. And then, you know, it's easy for a fan to, to get critical and say, well, then he's just a bum and he doesn't really care about, you know, committed committing to playing. It's just a game after all. And he's getting paid all this money. Look, it, th- these are athletes at an extraordinarily high level. So if they're not feeling comfortable and they're, and they're pissed off or really feel like that the, com- the whole company has become a negative place to work, then – 
that would certainly amplify whatever the sports media culture is and the pressure that you get anyway, Ben, that you re- refer to. Um, and I, I mean, it is tough being a Bulls fan or a Bears fan because you have these two like epic things hanging over you forever, right? The 1985 Bears were epic. They get a little too much, you know, time and, and talk these days. And, you know, it's been 35 years, so I'm not sure if it's really warranted to talk as much as we do about them now. But with the Bulls, it's, I mean, the Jordan Bulls are, you know, one of the most iconic championship elite dynasties in any sport at any time. Yeah. So that, those are tough. With the, the Cubs didn't have that, but they had 108 years of losing. And, yeah, I, I totally agree that it would have made sense that ripping the cap off of that would have been a mental release for these guys, and they could have just kept – they kept making the playoffs. They didn't really perform well in the playoffs. Maybe that has something to do with it. It's, it's sort of – I guess it's, you'll never know for sure what those reasons are why they couldn't beat the Dodgers, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. I, yeah, and I, I wanted to add to that a little bit. I even I, I look at uh, you know, when I was I was at the game where Javi got benched, uh, just because he had he had you know had a bit of a mental blunder. It was a, it was a you know a ball hit to the outfield. He thought it was two outs. He kept going. One of those things where you know that's kind of something that we're taught when we're younger is um, hey, unless there's, if there's not two outs, you know, you got you got to watch the ball. You got to tag up. You got to make sure you know you just basically got to watch the ball. Little things like that where I'm seeing the Cubs mentally getting taken out of this. Joe Buck. Gosh, Joe Buck, asking Chris Bryant about uh, the uh, oh, if you're not going to be a Cub, you know, we just asking those questions during the All Star game, kind of like bringing up these things again and kind of like reminding him, hey, things are going bad. We see things are going bad. We just want to know, hey, how are you feeling about it? It's like they, there's never a moment where they're ever to where they're, where they're really able to just like enjoy the game as much as they could prior prior to you know the big losing streak. Um, Wilson and Rizzo getting into it a little bit earlier uh, this year when they were in San Francisco, disagreeing about that. It's, it's, it's like things this year, kind of going back to the culture with Joe Madden, I don't think that these things would have happened to this extent had Joe Madden still been around. I don't know how much he would have impacted the performance on the field, but I do believe that uh, that culture that Joe Madden had with the Cubs was so detrimental to the success that they've had in the past. And there's been a lot of change going on within the Cubs organization from WGN to Marquee Network to even simply the organist Gary Pressey leaving and Len Casper leaving the Cubs and just little things like that. There's a lot of change going on with this organization right now. And it's very interesting to watch the Cubs as a whole go into this new era, this transitioning to this new phase of what we know them to be. Hmm. All right, uh, gentlemen, we have to move on because uh, I'm going to bring on our next guest, David Goetz, to talk about uh, city council news and Alderman and local politics. Uh, let's just get a prediction before we go. We're coming into the Cubs-Sox series. I dread this series because I root for both teams, so automatically I, one of my teams will lose. Uh, I think this is a curse. Uh, it's a bad idea and a PR stunt. That's me talking. Uh, so obviously uh, the Cubs are out of it. I want the White Sox to sweep. Uh, if the past is any prediction of the future, I will sit through two Cubs wins. That's my prediction. Two Cubs wins. And I will hate the Cubs for beating the White Sox. The White Sox need the wins, okay? And then we'll lose them. That's my prediction. Uh, Jim Coogan, your prediction. Well, let's hope not because at this point, it's a pretty empty roster on the north side. I, really, I mean, if, if anything, they've, they've set it up so that 
let's hope it's a White Sox sweep. They could use it. I mean, they got an eight and a half game lead in, in first place at this stage. They're doing fine. Now you're just kind of looking at how do you make sure the rest of these, these guys stay healthy the rest of the way and you set this rotation up the right way um, for the next two months because uh, as long as they keep playing good baseball, they're not going to collapse. But anything can happen. Guys get hurt, so you never want to have that happen. I'm going pre- to just boldly predict that the White Sox do sweep this series because at this stage, even though they lost Cody Hoyer, they might have the best bullpen in baseball. And even just to yep. throw something out there, Ben, I know you caught a little bit of Sunday's game. One of the one of the most fun things about it was that Brian Goodwin won the game on a on a great, I mean, three one count. You're looking for a <laughs> fastball. He saw the fastball. I texted this to Ben Miles. I don't know if you've seen this, but if you go to the White Sox webpage, I think you can actually see the the second replay gets a real close up of his face. You can actually see Goodwin's face as the ball's coming yeah. in. His eyes just like they're saucers. You can tell he sees like this is the fastball that I'm waiting for. And he just wrote <laughs> that, you know, game over. But the other thing that was a little quieter developing in the game, form or formerly a White Sox starter, Rodrigo Lopez. Here's another guy who has really has talent, but he just he'd get behind in counts last couple of seasons. He just fell out of the rotation. He threw three excellent innings. And this is like, if you add these other guys to the to the mix here, then even if Dallas Keuchel's just really kind of struggling to contribute as a rotation member, there's maybe seven, eight guys deep in this pen that can all contribute. So these are huge pieces if you're talking about, especially the way the playoff pitching is constructed these days. But I'm looking for a White Sox sweep yeah. to continue their glide path towards uh, getting some better home field advantage and, competing with the top teams in the AL to, to hopefully get a, a better record relative to Houston and to uh, the rest of the American League. So that's what I got. All right, Miles, your prediction? Yeah, I, this is this is painful. This is painful for me to say, but I'd be very surprised if the Sox do not sweep the Cubs. I'm hoping to take at least one out of three from them. I really don't think the Cubs at this point match up well with the White Sox. Not really much offensively that I can look at outside of Wilson and Patrick Wisdom when he's not striking out. Um, Jason Harrod when he's not grounding out. Yeah. Um, really, really not much to really uh, match up with the White Sox. I'm hoping that we at least take one out of three from them. Um, hoping for some solid starts from our starters. Uh, hope Keep my fingers crossed the bullpen. We can really tame this White Sox lineup. I don't know how much we really can. I really depend on Dan Winkler. That's my guy. I love Dan Winkler. I love watching him go out there and pitch. Um, Really outside of that, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully the Cubs can hold their own. All right. So if you had to put a money in Vegas, what's your prediction? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I'm going to say I'm going to say the White Sox are going to take two out of three from the Chicago Cubs. All right. I got the Cubs winning two to one. Uh, Jim's got the Sox sweeping. Uh, Miles has the Sox winning two to one. I really hope that Jim Coogan is correct because I am through with the Chicago Cubs uh, for this year. <laughs> Absolutely through with those bums. And I'm all 100% White Sox. I'm going to the game Thursday. And I'll leave you guys with this. I love. Brian Goodwin, Jim Coogan knows. I think Miles, you know, I'm all winner. Jim Coogan, he texted me. He texted me. Yeah, I texted you. Brian Goodwin hits a homer. I get so excited. He, for folks who don't know this, uh, he's a guy who's been in the minors. 
for most of his career. And he got a call up this year by the White Sox. It looked like his career was over. And he's really helped the Sox out a lot. So I love Brian Goodwin. When he hit that homer, I was so excited on uh, Sunday. So well, tell, Miles, tell me Glowatsy's lucky that you didn't spend the rest of the afternoon talking White Sox baseball. So <laughs> I could easily have done it. We could then we could have segued over to my beloved Chicago Bulls. Uh, but uh, I'll hold off on uh, more sports conversation. Uh, Jim and Miles, thank you very much. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Dave Glowatz, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy at Weber High School on the northwest side of Chicago. Once a month or so, he comes on our show with excellent clips of the Chicago City Council in action, and then we break them down. It's truly a fan favorite here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Welcome back, Cotter. Welcome back, Dave. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks very much. And uh, usually I begin by saying uh, Dave and I have not prepped, except and then I point out that Dave has told me what clips he's playing. In this case, no prep, ladies and gentlemen. No net. <laughs> I have no idea. What is about to come? This is total improv. Dave Glowatz, the ball is in your court. Do your thing. Maybe we just want to talk about the number of city sitting city council members currently under indictment. I think it went up 50% since the last time we talked, right? Yeah, uh, how many is it? 50% that goes to one to... No, what, the one to two would be 100%. Come on, Ben, get it together. How many are currently under indictment? I do not know the answer to this question. Oh, but I bet you do. Come on. Well, if I think about it, I mean, it's currently sitting under indictment. You got Burke. You got Austin. The nephew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How can I forget Alderman in the 11th Ward? Patrick Daly Thompson. Uh, yes, the nephew. I, just call him the nephew. I think that's uh, a, I think that's a record, though. I think three is the, the most we've ever had at simultaneously. Right? I think so. Mm. Listeners, <laughs> you, listeners, listeners, let us know if uh, you don't agree with that. Listen. Alderman nephew of uh, the 11th <laughs> Ward, uh, Patrick Daly Thompson. Uh, he's the nephew of the former mayor, Mayor Richard M. Daly. He's the grandson of the former former mayor, Mayor Richard J. Daly. Anyway, the nephew, yes. How can I forget the nephew? Uh, anyway, we're not going to talk about that. Today we're going to talk about the July meeting of the full city council, which took place on July 21. And this was in person, again, that's third month in a row in the council chamber. I counted just two aldermen who attended via video conference, so they're getting pretty good turnout. And it was a pretty long meeting. It was over five and a half hours and it might interest you to know, Ben, that a little half, a little over half hour of that was devoted to honoring retiring Streets and Sand Commissioner. Do you know his name? No. John Tully is his name. Hmm. Apparently has a few or had a few decades in Streets and Sanitation. So that's a little background. Uh, Dennis, please, we're going to do Rosa first. The big news from this meeting, which you, Ben, and your listeners probably have heard, was the approval of a citywide elected commission that would oversee police department policy. And leading up to this meeting, this July 21 meeting, activist alderman and Mayor Lori Lightfoot had differing, differing versions of an ordinance that would implement this, what's called community oversight and all these folks announced a weekend negotiating session before the city council meeting 
which led to a public safety committee meeting scheduled for 5 p.m. on Tuesday before the Wednesday morning full council meeting. At that uh, Tuesday public safety committee meeting, they passed something called the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability. And that's something that proponents have been calling the Empowering Communities for Public Safety or ECPS ordinance. There's a lot of potential acronyms here. Uh, they'll still be rolling out. And for everybody keeping score, that ordinance that passed is record number SO2019-4132. So it passed the Public Safety Committee meeting on that Tuesday evening fairly closely, uh, 12 in favor, 8 against. And it passed the full council 36 to 13. So what we're going to hear, Ben, is two sets of remarks that took place before the council's vote. This first set starts with 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. Let's listen. I hope that we can come together today, vote to enact this ordinance, bring community voice into policing in the city of Chicago, and work collectively towards a day where we don't see our young people like Laquan McDonald and Adam Toledo shot in the streets. This is a step forward for justice. The chair recognizes Alderman Spazzato. I didn't plan on speaking, but yet somebody has to set me off and attack the police and accuse the police of murder once again. Adam Toledo was not murdered. It's a tragic incident what happened. We don't need police reform. We need family reform. Families need to start taking ownership and watching after their children. We already have 11 oversights that I see, and I'm gonna read them off to you. AG, body cameras, consent decree, COPA, DOJ, FBI, IAD, IG, Illinois Torture Board, police board, state's attorney, supervisors, and if you want to talk about community involvement, we can include DAC and CAPS. I know you've been working on this four, five, 10, 20, 50 years, whatever you want to say. Bottom line is we got a phone book of information on a Monday morning. They were to vote on Tuesday afternoon, and now we're voting on it in council. So I think it's wrong. I'm not going to DNP it, so don't get all nervous, everybody. You're going to win. I'm going to lose. The police are going to lose, and the city's going to lose. The chair recognizes Alderman Baskins. I feel a certain frustration. We have members of the council here who vote no on oversight or don't show up. But yet when the settlements are here, they'll vote no on those, knowing that month after month, we keep doling out money because the system doesn't work. I appreciate that in a democracy, people can vote no. But let's not misrepresent and say that those who are in support of fixing an institution are not for public safety. I'd argue that those who want to stay and do nothing and continue the status quo aren't for public safety. The chair recognizes Alderman Hairston. Some of the comments that I heard yesterday was that we have too much police oversight. I believe we talked, we got 11 organizations, 12 organizations. And if that were true, and if they worked, we wouldn't be here. We will hear or have heard many people talk about this ordinance creating more bureaucracy and more cost. What is more costly than a life or the hundreds of millions of dollars this city has paid in settlements and verdicts? The chair recognizes Alderman Sixto Lopez. I wasn't planning on speaking either, but I think that there are some comments that need to be addressed. I would like to remind our colleagues about the facts on the Adam Toledo case. The fact is that there was a police report that was incorrect. 
and lied about the age of a 13-year-old. The fact is that there was a mother who for 48 hours did not even know what happened to her child. Now, those are the facts. And those facts are uncomfortable, but those are facts that are real in our community. I am speaking, I am speaking, sir, and I'm speaking with facts. Let me, let me intercede for one second. Thus far, we've had a very civilized debate. It's my hope and expectation that that will continue. This is not about call and response to members talking to each other. We are here and we should lift up this conversation. This is an historic, important moment for our city. Let me remind everyone here. So please, ladies and gentlemen, let's make sure that the commentary, the discussion and the debate is worthy of this moment. This is not about attacking each other. It can't be, and I will not allow that to happen as a presiding chair. I wasn't planning to speak, Ben, but I will. <laughs> I, I, somehow I doubt every single alderman who said, I wasn't planning. <laughs> um, what, something that you couldn't tell quite from listening to it, but I witnessed was when Alderman Byron Sichel Lopez of the 25th Ward, when he got up to speak, he was actually standing behind Alderman Sposato, they, they have in, in the council these days, before they have yet to uh, bring the public back into the chamber, the public's allowed upstairs in the mezzanine behind on, on glass windows, but they're not in the chamber because they have the aldermen spread out into the public seating area so they can all be, you know, distanced. I don't know much how long how much longer they're going to do that, but. So it ended up with Sixto Lopez sitting behind Spazzato, and then he was essentially, Spazzato was turning around, turned around and was looking right at him, and Sixto Lopez was just saying, you know, I, I essentially disagree with you, sir, and Spazzato started, like, talking back to him, and that's when Mayor Lightfoot intervened. Uh, one more thing that I'd like to point out before I kick it to you, Ben, is that Alderman Spazzato named what he called 11 oversights of the police department, and he threw out a bunch of acronyms. <laughs> I just want, to, just want to decode them really quickly. Okay. First, what he said was AG. That means the Illinois Attorney General's Office. And each of these, we can quibble on whether there's really oversight there or not, but he was you know, obviously trying to come up with the longest, or not obviously, maybe coming up with the longest list possible. So the Illinois Attorney General's Office does have a hand and having brought the lawsuit under former Attorney General Lisa Madigan that resulted in the federal consent decree that the police department is operating under, whether they're doing day-to-day -day oversight is, I don't know, I think that's debatable. The next one he mentioned was COPA, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, that is arguably one of the two bodies that does do uh, regular case-level oversight. They, they investigate most citizen complaints about the police department and um, most shootings by the police department. Then he said DOJ, which is U.S. Department of Justice, which is a party to the federal consent decree, but arguably does not provide any daily or systemic oversight. Then he said FBI. I don't know about that one. Then he said IAD, which means Internal Affairs Division, which now is called the Bureau of Internal Affairs. This is a section of the police department that also investigates the police, and they have 
different jurisdiction than COPA in that they investigate violations by police of their own internal rules. So say, for example, there was accusations of a copper who spent most of the day at home instead of being on his shift, and someone complained about that. That would that would go to Bureau of Internal Affairs. Then Spizzato said IG, which is the Chicago Office of Inspector General, which does uh, actually do um, some systemic uh, oversight of the police department into things like overtime abuse and things of that nature. They threw out a couple more. One was DAC, District Advisory Council, which is in each of the 22 police districts, there's a group of residents who self-select to sit on this body that gives more or less um, counseling or advice to the district commander. And the last one he said um, that uh, was not obvious was CAPS, the Chicago Alternative Policing Strategy, which is citywide forum for citizens to meet with police officers in their districts on a regular basis. I'll pause there. Yeah, uh, that was a really good job, Dave, of breaking those down. Uh, and your first point, I think, is really on target. And I think uh, uh, Nick Pizzato probably would admit to this if we were just informally chatting uh, over a beer or something. I don't know if he would come on the show and say it, but he was padding the list. Uh, the reality is that at one point or another, uh, all of these entities, I don't know about CAPS, uh, but uh, many of these entities have investigated police misconduct or alleged police misconduct. It does not mean, uh, as he is suggesting, that they have oversight. You know, it's like you said, the FBI is not on a regular basis taking a look at uh, the Chicago police. But I don't even know what case in particular he's talking about with the FBI. Uh, but So he was padding the list. Uh, and uh, essentially, he's articulating the notion that there is too much oversight of the Chicago Police Department, which... I cannot say I, I have to, <laughs> that is really an exaggeration in my humble opinion. And the reality is this, is that um, the kind of specific oversight that the Carlos Ramirez Rosas and the Byron Cisha Lopez's uh, and uh, various other uh, police uh, critics have been calling for for the last 10 years or so. Uh, is not present in the city of Chicago. So there's all this um, after-the-fact investigations, which is what you were getting at, Dave, of cases that explode uh, into the public's attention, like the Juan McDonald shooting. That is an after-the-fact investigation. But there is no body uh, right now, as far as I can tell, and I think Nick Spazzato would agree with me, that is what? sort of watching the police uh, on a regular basis to make sure that we don't have situations like Laquan McDonald. And Dave, I've been thinking a lot about Laquan McDonald. Actually, it's on my mind right now. Jason Van Dyke hopped out of his car and shot this man with 16 bullets. And just think about how long it took the city of Chicago and the state's attorney uh, to essentially hold him responsible for that and think about how much resistance there is in the city of Chicago to what he did and how still many police officers in the city of Chicago, I'll bet you if Nick was on the show, he would be one championing them say that 
Jason Van Dyke did not do anything wrong. And so the reality is there's just such a split. I don't know, political, cultural split between the most hardcore supporters of the police department who are themselves either police officers or former police officers or firefighters turned aldermen like Nick Spazzato and I would say the rest of the city. And so none of these groups that oversee the police department are confronting that split in any real way. So this newly created oversight body, which will be uh, selected by voters, whose members will be selected by voters, will be our first oversight group that actually deals with these political and cultural differences that are on display at the city council meeting that you just uh, who that you just cited. Go ahead. You have your finger in the air. You want to raise up? Arguably, uh, there is someone already elected that should address that split, and that would be the mayor. Okay, well, all right, uh, yes, and um, <laughs> and then you could say arguably the city council as well, um, but the, culturally and politically in the city, in this city, is the history the mayors do not want to confront the police department, and I, and Laquan McDonald again shows it. The typical way of dealing with a police abuse is the Laquan McDonald situation. The lawyer for the city takes a look at the evidence, in this case, the videotape of Jason Van Dyke shooting Laquan McDonald, and then makes a decision, in this case, let's just pay this family as much money as we can up front so we can make this thing disappear. $5 and million. Then, $5 million. And then they get the city council to rubber stamp it. <laughs> so the city council doesn't look at the video. They don't cite the, they, the, the lawyer comes in front of the city council and essentially says, trust me. $5 million would be cheap compared to what we would have to pay if the public saw the evidence. And then the mayor, the Cook County state's attorney, they bury the evidence. It's like, oh, that takes care of that. And then they ride it out and we move on and until there's a the next shooting. Uh, and in the case of Laquan McDonald, what happened, as you know, Dave, uh, a Cook County judge ruled that Mayor Rahm had to release the video. I believe it was a friend of yours who uh, petitioned the uh, Cook County, uh, uh, petitioned the city to release that video. And once that video was released, lo and behold, everyone's outraged. Oh, my God, we have to prosecute. And even then, the Knicks Pisanos of the world are saying it was justified. So I'm thinking, I'm trying to be hopeful here, that a, a body filled with uh, people who are elected for the specific purpose of dealing with police conduct may be able, <laughs> as soon as I say this, Dave, I start feeling, oh my God, this is so naive, but may be able to come to some consensus as to what is and, or is not uh, inappropriate uh, behavior. And as we had uh, Carlos on the show uh, defending it, Carlos uh, Ramirez Rosa is very defending the um, uh, the bill that they passed, the oversight body that they passed. And as he points out, everybody in the city of Chicago uh, is open for running for these these positions. The Fraternal Order Police will probably slate candidates to run for this body. So it's not as though the people in this body will all be Byron Sixto Lopez allies. There's probably going to be some Nick Spazzato allies in this as well, Dave. So this is our first step, uh, in my humble opinion, toward 
democracy on this matter. And I have no idea where it's going to end up going. Though I know that you, like me, feel like more democracy generally is what we want if we can um, create structures that can facilitate that. More democracy, more transparency, release public information. You know, it's funny because I've been... uh, This is a debate outside of what we're talking about. But Republicans, you know, Democrats in Congress want to have the January 6th insurrection investigated. You know, what was Trump's role, et cetera, and so forth. You're talking about the the tourist trip. (laughs) The tourist. Yes, what Republicans talk, the tourist trip. Uh, And um, another police officer, by the way, committed suicide, a Capitol police officer. Uh, It just yesterday, the other day, was reported. Anyway. Uh, and Republicans, they want to deflect it. And they talk, well, we want to do an investigation of the rioting that took place over the summer. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. I, I would like, I'm still waiting for an investigation of what, like, what was the city's strategy in, in, in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder? So I'm with you. I'm more transparency, more democracy. So, yeah, I would like to know. You know, I would like to see an investigation of that as well. So you know that the um, the federal monitor for the consent decree Kate, did come out with a report uh, around the police and city response to the the protests and um, quote riots unquote that took place after the George Floyd murder, as well as uh, an investigation by the inspector general's office. Yes. So those are both out there. They're both out there. There's no public hearings about it. You know, you're absolutely correct. Inspector General does a report. He releases a report. There's no public hearings. There's no testimony. Uh, you know, it's done in secret. It's so Chicago, Dave. It's everything is like we're going to have an investigation. And then they release a report of the investigation. And it, it just seems to raise more questions uh, than it provides answers. That's I just generally. That, I think feeling. the IG's report was fairly detailed. I, 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 I beg to differ with that characterization. I don't think it was, um, I didn't think it pulled it, pulled many punches. I'm not accusing them of pulling punches. What I'm saying is that the typical Chicago uh, reaction is to do uh, an investigation that's off the books. I mean, excuse me, that's not in front of the public. And then they release a report. Uh, and you're absolutely Some reports are better than other reports. Uh, but, you don't have testimony. You don't have questions and answers. You don't have kind of like the, the partisan edge. You know, you don't get to see the, um, the players responding directly uh, to what's asked of them. So there's a certain lack of transparency uh, at play uh, in every single one of these uh, investigations, in my opinion. Would you be referencing the uh, independent, the, the law firm that's investigating what the mayor knew about um, what the, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting confused about which incident this was. Anjanette Young? Oh, uh, yes, the Anjanette, the, the wrongful raid of Anjanette Young's home. Okay, so mayor, that's... mayor announced her own investigation where she got a law firm pro bono to investigate what she knew and when she knew it. Yeah. We haven't heard about that ever. No, we haven't. That, and we made fun of that uh, as well we should. 
that's a mockery of everything. The Chicago Blackhawks have just done the same thing. And I know we're going far afield here from where, where, where you want to go, but where there's a, a matter of a, a allegations of a sexual assault by a former a, a trainer or coach. I can't remember what his exact title was of a player. And so it's the issue is what did the Blackhawks know and when did they know it? And so rather than <laughs> tell us, they go, well, we're going to do an investigation to find out what we knew. And this is like becomes standard practice and they trot out uh some former prosecutors now working for a, a high-priced criminal defense firm you know what i'm saying and <laughs> well this is honorable and distinguished man because he used to throw bad guys in jail and now he, he keeps bad guys from going to jail it seems to be quite the playbook uh yes it's a playbook. sports analogy that this is how one this is how an organization deals with these scandals yes. it's just uh blue it's ribbon it used to be called blue ribbon yes Yes. Uh, and uh, I, for one, would like to see a little more democracy and transparency. But this is Chicago and we don't get it. All right. Let's move on from this young Dave. And what do you got next for us? Dennis, please. We'll do Thompson next. Continuing with Alderman's comments on the community oversight ordinance. We'll now hear from someone who objected to it, or I should say another person who objected to it. Southside 11th Ward Alderman. Patrick Thompson, who we mentioned earlier. Wasn't he the nephew? <laughs> Alder are you, nephew. Aren't you forgetting his middle name? <gasps> Patrick Daly Thompson. Thank you. Let's listen. I believe we have a structure in place. We have a police board that has the authority for adopting rules and regulations for the governance of the police department. I know in my community, they're looking for us not to create more government, but to help with public safety and help with the day-to-day issues that we face in the city of Chicago. I think we can do this through reforming, as I've said, the police board. The chair recognizes Alderman Napolitano. Everybody knows that there needs to be reform. Many of us believe that reform is already in place or is in the process. In great conversation, I keep hearing that this is going to play out stronger in other parts of the city and less in other parts of the city. I got to call BS on that. It's going to have effect on the entire city. I'm praying that you get to that street code of harass, threaten, or murder anybody that talks to the police. This acronym isn't going to make people come out and talk to them anymore. What it's going to do is going to have police officers want to interact just a little bit less and fear of everything they do will be recorded on this and held in the wrong way and go to an oversight committee who's going to fire them, sue them, have them lose their house and destroy their family just for trying to do the job as a police officer. And what I know what we'll be doing here in the next six months is creating another acronym committee to find out why has our crime tripled? The job has been demonized. This new committee, this 12th layer of police oversight, is going to make every potential wannabe officer think about going in a different direction. So I hope the next six months we put a little bit more time and effort to fixing that out there and not worrying about if we're going to have enough people telling the police what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong while they're in the middle of a war, a war on our city. The chair recognizes Alderman Mitz. I do want you to know my personal experience with this issue is when I came into city council and my colleagues were debating on John Burrs and I didn't know who John Burrs was. So once I have learned and became a victim 
myself through a family member, 13 years old, being accused, coerced, being tortured, and having no oversight whatsoever to even allow parents to come to the jailhouse for 20 years locked up, I know we need some oversight. But it affects surrounding members, my nephew's mother, who did not even live to see him being exonerated 25 years later. There are so many young Black people and Brown in the jail system right now. And you tell me we're not going to do any reform? We're not going to do anything? Now, to say what's not going to work, I think it is inedible for us to say that because we really don't know what tomorrow we're going to bring. So how can you say something that you really don't know? I think that we need to have faith that it works because faith is something that you can hope for. I have a little bit more in that exchange from 26 Ward Alderman Roberto Maldonado, who says why he disagrees with Alderman Anthony Napolitano, the 41st Ward. And if listeners want to hear that, they can find it on my extended episode about this council meeting at shygov.com. That's really good stuff, David. Very powerful. Anthony, uh, Alderman Anthony Napolitano, 41st Ward Alderman, uh, is a police officer, a former police officer. I'm not quite sure which. He was uh, apparently both a firefighter and a police officer. officer. uh, What is that? A renaissance man. Yeah, he's a renaissance man. I just don't uh, know if he's currently uh, on leave or what have you. But uh, the point is, uh, he's a very strong supporter of of the police, as is Nick Spazzato, uh, who is another Northwest side alderman. And, you know, listen, uh, and Emma Mitz is the alderman of the alderman of the 37th Ward, and she's generally a supporter of the mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and before Lori Lightfoot, uh, Rahm Emanuel. So uh, she's speaking very powerful, uh, passionately about the issue as it has affected someone in her family. And I, I'm listening to those uh, sound bites that you have, Dave, and I'm just thinking in the context of the, again, going back to the congressional investigation of January 6th. And up is down, is down, is up. Because politically speaking, Anthony Napolitano uh, is essentially a supporter of MAGA. You know, he's, I don't know if he's literally a Republican, but he supported Jeannie Ives in 2018, which comes about as Republican as you can get. Uh, and Nick Posado came on the show and admitted he voted uh, for Donald John Trump. And yet when it comes to the uh, attack of MAGA on police officers at the Capitol, the general reaction of MAGA is uh, that the um, the folks doing the attacking were law-abiding citizens who were outraged, almost like they had a right to do it. And now MAGA is saying they're being uh, unfairly treated. And so it's just it's just curious juxtaposition. So what MAGA only defends police officers when they're on the streets of Chicago, but they will not defend them when they're being attacked by Donald Trump supporters. Is that their position of MAGA right now? There is uh, some stuff that uh, Napolitano said that we didn't play where he talked about it's the uh, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember exactly, but he talked about the dysfunction not being in the police department, but in the family, the family units in Chicago. So what we have, I believe that reflecting on reflective of is 
the you know the two Chicagos that we have. We have Napolitano, who's from the far northwest side, pretty white uh, demographically. I believe not relating very well to a neighborhood of say West Side Alderman Emma Mitz's ward, where uh, they they don't. They see things very differently, and I don't know how you cross that divide. Which gets back to your earlier point around this uh, this commission, this uh, community commission for public safety, where these, as you say, some you know these different people will be thrown into a room. We think, we expect, we hope, and then we'll see. Like how how can these perspectives these radically different perspectives mix it up yeah and 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 come to some kind of synthesis and 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 well put and anti napolitano uh, patrick daly thompson and nick spazato will probably all be endorsing candidates to run for this board i just want to point that out it's called democracy and uh they will be supporting candidates and the candidates to support will probably win some of these positions and then we're going to have debate on the issues of the day and if uh, if there's going to be someone on the board who's going to defend like a J- Jason Van Slyke, uh, Van Dyke, excuse me, I'm thinking of a baseball player, Jason Van Dyke, then let me hear that. Let me hear that defense. Uh, but this is, you know, a democracy should try to deal with situations like this in democratic ways. Uh, and, and by the way, I had a smile and just shake my head. Patrick Daly Thompson. Let's never forget the Daly part of that name. Patrick Daly Thompson, current alderman of the 11th Ward, uh, who, whose uncle was the former mayor of the city of Chicago. That would be Richard M. Daly. And whose grandfather was the former mayor of the city of Chicago. That would be Richard J. Daly is now getting up sounding like a Republican. Oh, not to create more government. Come on, Patrick Daly Thompson. <laughs> you sound like a Republican. Your granddaddy is turning over in his grade. We're creating more government. What we need is less government. <laughs> you got your start at the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, right? Didn't he get Water Reclamation he was, District? He was a water, water rec commissioner, yeah. I, I didn't hear you complain about government when you were like, well, you turn the water tap on and water comes out. Hey, where's my paycheck? Come on, man. <laughs> to quote Joe Biden, come on, man. Patrick Daly Thompson. Don't forget the daily part of the Patrick Daly Thompson. Alderman Nephew suddenly, oh, my God. There's just too much government. We got to cut back on government. I, I did. That was an inadvertent coining of a moniker on my part there. Oh, don't tuck and dodge. <laughs> you were up all night creating that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's leave this community oversight thing. I think we've uh, we've uh, examined the heck out of it. Dennis, please, we're going to do biz next. At the very end of most council meetings, Ben, is a time allotted to what they call unfinished business. And at the July 21 meeting, unfinished was something left out of a June city council meeting in which Alderman passed a package of reforms called the Shy Biz Strong Initiative. That ordinance relaxed some business licensing and regulation rules and gave financial relief to relief to struggling businesses you know, post-pandemic. But in June, 42nd Ward Alderman Brendan Riley managed to separate from that package a piece that would, would have taken away Alderman's power 
over new business signs and sidewalk seating, sort of approval of uh, certain parts of, of new business licensing. So what happened at the July meeting is that the chair of the License and Consumer Protection Committee, Alderman Emma Mitz, announced a proposal on revising that power, which we'll first hear in this piece described by Alderman Riley. Let's listen. I'm very pleased to report we have reached a fair and reasonable compromise that will result in much faster issuance of the vast majority of public way use permits for businesses. If the local alder person and BACP agree that the public way use application meets the code requirements for a permit, the permit is issued without need for an ordinance to be passed by city council. This could save up to 60 days in time to the issuance to the applicant. This impacts more than 95% of the applications we process as a council. If the local alder person and BACP agree that the public way use application does not meet the code requirements for a permit, the permit application will be denied. If the local alder person thinks the public way use permit application does not meet the code requirements for a permit, but BACP thinks the application does meet the requirements, the permit applicant with the assistance of BACP may submit to city council an applicant-sponsored ordinance granting approval of a public way use permit for the city council to consider. Our goal here was to get permits in the hands of business owners much faster. This ordinance accomplishes that goal while also preserving our authority in those rare instances where we have disagreement with the administration. I move that the substitute ordinance be placed before the body for consideration. Chair recognizes Alderman Bill. I do believe that something of this magnitude really should go back before a committee and be heard in a committee meeting where we can have the commissioner come and testify before us to discuss something of this magnitude. So my motion is to send it back to committee for discussion. Chair recognizes Alderman Riley. To my colleague's concern, we have been negotiating in earnest for some time now. The eureka moment wasn't reached until yesterday morning, but we did work very quickly, I think, with the government affairs staff as well as the Legislative Reference Bureau to get the draft language out as quickly as humanly possible so that members would have a chance to review that language and the one-page fact sheet. And in the correspondence I sent to all 50 colleagues yesterday, we offered to answer any questions or concerns. As I understand from the Legislative Reference Bureau, they received a few questions from aldermen. The aldermen were satisfied with those answers. It sounds that the majority of us are willing to proceed with this and move forward. I do believe that Chairman Mitz already has a motion pending. I'm not sure that my colleague, Alderman Beal, is in order. Let me go to Alderman Smith. A two-sentence change, I think, that really solves a lot of problems for everybody. Let's vote. Let me refer members to Rule 21, which lists the order of motions. The motion that was pending before Alderman Beal rose to speak was number five, to move the previous question, which takes precedence over your motion, Alderman Beal, which is a referred back to committee. So the motion to move the previous question takes precedent and must be voted on. Are you moving for a roll call vote? I was going to renew my motion to move passage of the substitute ordinance with the first favorable roll call vote of the Committee on Finance. I recognize this, Alderman Beal. Would you prefer a roll call vote? Because well, there I, is an objection. I, I, I actually prefer that we adopt the substitute without trying to pass it. It sounds like she's trying to pass it before accepting the substitute. It was not adopted. Let me just clarify. I believe that what Chairman Mitz is attempting is, in the first instance, to adopt the substitute. Then there must be a second vote on whether or not the substitute is approved by the body. So it's a two-step process. You can accept the substitute. All right. So hearing no objections, so ordered, the substitute is accepted. Next step. 
pending question is to have the body now move to approve the substitute. Alderman Beal's motion is to refer the substitute back to committee. So ladies and gentlemen, what you would be voting on is whether or not Alderman Beal's motion to refer the matter back to committee should be approved. A yes vote is to refer, a no vote is to vote on it at this moment. Got all that? Oh, man, that's beautiful stuff, ladies and gentlemen. That's democracy. Remember I said democracy? This is what you're going to get. Napolitano, <laughs> Spazzato, with oversight. That's called democracy. David, I David, I have to point out that, uh, uh, that this one acronym is that Riley was tossing around, BACP, is the Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection. That is the agency that actually grants business licenses. And, and the core of this discussion is whether aldermen who formerly got or historically have gotten to approve when a business wants to put in a new sign or put sidewalk seating or something of that nature with what he called the public way permits, aldermen would have to approve those first and then create and craft a, um, an ordinance that would go before the city council and they would pass it. Well, this, this uh, compromise that they, that they crafted would bypass that if the alderman, you know, okayed it and said, uh, just issue the permit. And what they were, and also what they were debating, it was Beal, Alderman Beal of the very far south side's ninth ward was saying, uh, we just got this like uh, two days ago and I'm not sure that, like, uh, I don't know, maybe he, you know, he's, he hasn't caught up on his email or something and he just had time to read it. Uh, and he wants to send it back to committee and tried to use a parliamentary procedure uh, that uh, he actually, in the end, was pretty crafty about it. He said Emma Mitz was trying to um, kind of accelerate. He was trying to combine two motions into one, and he picked it apart. And he got his motion voted on, but it, yeah. he lost it. He lost. So this did, this did get approved. All right. Uh, so I just... I want to take a moment here to talk about uh, the wheeling, the parliamentary uh, machinations in the city council. We took a, a deep dive on this last month, uh, not just with uh, Dave Glowatz, but uh, Alderman Maria Haddon came on the show, Dave, uh, and we played excerpts from the, the, the June meeting and that you had uh, presented on our show. Uh, so big shout out to you for that. And she analyzed them. Uh, she's become a parliamentary expert. Uh, and I, the reality is that uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, was a little deceitful, uh, to put it mildly, in the June meeting uh, where she was sort of inventing parliamentary decisions that she went along to, to back her. I think she was playing it a little bit more by the book uh, in this go around. It seems that way. Yeah, yeah it seems this way because she allowed Beal to get his vote. He lost. And... Uh, you know, but there's that one moment I was laughing out loud where she goes, let me just clarify. <laughs> I don't believe those words apply to anything that went before. it. If I were an alderman in Chicago City Council, I would be so freaking lost. I would like it would be like me back in chemistry in high school. I'd find the smartest person on the floor and go, what the hell just happened? And be what? like picking Carlos's. I know Carlos Ramirez Rosa knows what's going on. I'd be like, Carlos, what? What? Huh? What she was doing was actually correcting MITS because MITS had combined the approval of uh, new language, what they call the substitute ordinance, and then passing 
of yeah. the ordinance. She 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 met she she mashed them together, and Lightfoot had to uh, pick them back apart again. So what she was saying was, let me correct you, but she was being euphemistic. She didn't want to make it look like she was insulting. Let me clarify. Uh, the bottom line is this: Should aldermen have a say uh, in the issuing of a permit? This gets into aldermen and prerogative. Should aldermen have a say? So if the city of Chicago decides they're going to give a, a restaurant the, uh, a license to operate uh, as a cafe on a sidewalk and the alderman objects, then the aldermen are saying that matter should come before the city council. If the aldermen and the city see eye to eye on the permit, then it should just pass automatically. You know, Brendan Riley, to me, it seems like a good compromise. So I would have gone here, here, and voted uh, <laughs> with Brendan Riley. And at the gym meeting, he he kind of sketched it out, as I recall, in just this way. And I, I'm curious as to why it took such uh, elaborate negotiations to get the language hammered out. I love he goes, we had a eureka moment. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, yeah like, what, what was it? <laughs> what was the eureka moment? I, and I'm not, a eureka moment is when the, like, the light comes on and you suddenly see, you understand something you didn't understand before. So I'm like, what happened? Did the light go on? And then Mayor Lori Lightfoot suddenly realized, you know, I completely exaggerated the horrors of automatic prerogative. I'm going to back off on that. I don't think that was the eureka moment. She's yeah, going to be whipping that horse. We're going to wait, we're gonna have to wait years from now when all these people retired and write their memoirs to find out <laughs> what happened there. The Eureka moment. That'll be the name of uh, <laughs> Riley's memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to this last bit if we could. Okay. Uh, Dennis, please, we're going to do suit next. So that's all I've got from the July 21 meeting. The week following that meeting, the Committee on Finance held one of its regular meetings at which it considered several orders that okayed settlements in police-related lawsuits against the city. And this dovetails nicely with the conversation we were having earlier, Ben, around perceptions of members of the city council about uh, when transparency versus... um, transparency is needed when payouts are justified. And this, um, this particular bid involves the largest money settlement that the finance committee was considering in its July meeting. And that was for $1.2 million with the family of 16 year old Pierre Lowry. Lowry was shot and killed by a police officer after a foot chase. Lowry reportedly ran from a car that police had stopped because someone told them that they'd seen gunshots fired from this car. The federal lawsuit that ensued is known as Tambrasha Hudson versus City of Chicago and Officer Sean Hitz, H-I-T-Z. And for those keeping score, the federal case number is 16CV4452, and the city order crafting or uh, ensuring the money settlement was OR2021-195. This bit starts with an exchange between 38th World Alderman Nick Spizzato and city lawyer Jeff Levine, and that's followed by Finance Committee Chair Alderman Scott Wagespeg. Let's listen. The shooter, who is a known gangbanger, that's a fact, just so everybody knows. You may well assert that he was a known gangbanger, but that would be excluded from the trial. Right, that I disqualify not... what the superintendent said about him. I know, and I'm saying that that's one of the reasons 
why we are seeking to settle, because that is something that we would not be able to bring up. Many of my colleagues ask about CRs all the time. And my thing, I'm known as a guy that wants to know the complimentary history. Just want to make sure everybody knows this is not a bad kid. This is not a rogue cop that shot him. He's a young man at this point in his career. Is a complimentary history of 88 different things, a superintendent's award of valor. I'm just guessing he's what the police call a producer, a guy that works, a guy that's not afraid to work. I think it's fair to say that voting in support of this settlement is not a vote indicting the officer at issue here. It is for saving the city money. Sometimes you have to understand that for people like me, sometimes we have to dig in and say this is ridiculous. Judges like this judge need to be thrown out for not allowing certain stuff more of the facts. Jeff, it's a federal judge, right? Yes. Okay. They do have lifetime appointments, right? Yes. I don't think there's anything (laughs) that I'm saying or that anyone on the committee is saying that it's appropriate to criticize the judge. My point about the rulings is not to stir people up or be critical, but simply to say these are the cards we're dealt in going to trial We are limited, and that is why it is a sound strategic decision to try to effectively manage the risk here. Alderman Lopez. Losses like this, I think, have a damaging effect on our city's finances, more so than this singular lawsuit, because that emboldens criminals and individuals to know that if they are harmed or something happens to their family members who are gang members or committed to criminality, they're going to get paid. And this is something that we've seen time and again, something that I and others have railed against. When do we start pushing back against these rulings that are harmful to our city that don't allow us to give the full spread of facts so that we can paint the entire picture? When the law department presents these settlements, it does have a discouraging quality to it, but that doesn't represent the entire picture. I mean, the law department is litigating a lot of cases and we are winning cases. So I would not agree with your assertion that the public at large and that the plaintiff's bar is viewing what we do here today as an encouragement to bring more lawsuits against the city. And we do have a good record. We win cases. It's just the settlements fall into a category where we are bringing these to you to authorize an outlay of funds for settlement. Chairman, on on the flip side, I'd say I'd love to have a hearing maybe or a discussion with law to see the cases and maybe highlight where they have pushed back and won. Because I think the narrative is that we're always settling. It's a very illuminating exchange there to talk about how the law department figures this out in terms of settlements in a, in a, in a perspective that I think maybe surprised a bunch of committee members and surprised me too, that Alderman Ray Lopez of, Lopez of the 15th Ward highlighted there at the end, like, well, how many cases does the city win? You know, you never, you never hear about that. Now, just one detail that I want to clarify Alderman Spazato at the beginning referenced CRs and a complementary history in terms of uh, a police officer's uh, career. CR means complaint register. So what Spazato was saying that when council members are considering the law department's argument that a suit would not be, would not best serve the city to take a suit to trial, one of the things they look at is what is the officer's complaint history in terms of number of CRs. And Spazato says, well, I'm the guy 
I'm, I'm not going to do my special invitation. I have too much respect. I'm, I'm the guy who uh, looks at the number of commendations, what he called the complementary history. And he, he mentioned with respect to this particular officer who uh, shot the uh, Mr. Lowry is that this officer had 88 commendations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so if it comes to a trial, both would both of those issues would be uh, brought before the judge or jury. In other words, if the city if the city followed uh, Alderman Esposado's advice, turned on the settlement and said, see in court and the matter uh, came before a jury. uh, The city's lawyer would be talking about the accommodations of the police officer. And the family's lawyer would be talking about uh, the CRs, okay? The complaint register against police officers. That's what's going to happen. So that will be addressed uh, in a court. Now, the issue of whether the, uh, a federal judge would allow uh, the, uh, the, what's his name, Pierre Lowry's background, I assume that's what Nick Sposato was getting at. He said he's a gangbanger. He's a known gangbanger. I yeah, guess he was, that he was repeating what the superintendent said about Lowry and yeah. the lawyer Jeff Levine said yeah. that that his his alleged gangbanger status was was already uh, the judge already said that he's not yeah. going to allow that in court. Yeah. So I I, I don't know if that's absolutely one hundred percent true, uh, but I. Again, the Levine's point, this gets back to what I was talking about before. We talk about this all the time uh, in these matters. It's not really a matter of justice in the greater scheme of things that the city is taking care of in these police settlements. It's exactly what uh, Jeffrey Levine was saying. He called it effectively managing losses. In other words, the lawyers for the city, they view their job as getting rid of these cases as cheaply as they can. And like the, the greater issue of right and wrong and justice and injustice, that's not what they're dealing with, Dave. They're just trying to look, get rid of this case. Risk management. Risk management. That's how they do it. And that's what was at stake with Laquan McDonald. That's the same thing I was just talking about about 15 minutes ago. The lawyer says to the mayor, presumably, if a jury sees this, Video, we're cooked. Let's give them the money. Let's bury this thing. And that's what's going on. And um, I'm not certain. So it's like each it's like each side wants to have it both ways. So the Nick Spazados of the world will say any kind of oversight of the police is unwarranted because it'll keep them from doing their job. Even the road cops, you admit that there are road cops. It's going to keep them from doing their jobs, you know, and then they, they also say uh, anytime you punish the city uh, for a shooting that just encourages what, what does it encourage more lawlessness in general? Yeah. I mean, I'll bet you there's more people every year. Here you go. This is I don't know. This is something we could find who gets sent to jail. than win a settlement with the police. You know what I'm saying, Dave? So it's not like I'm a criminal. Hmm. What I think I'll do is I'm going to go out today and I'm going to incite a confrontation with the police in the hopes that they shoot me 
but they don't kill me. They wound me. And then I could sue them and make money like five years down the road. I'm not really sure that's happening. Go ahead. It is um, similar to what the argument that is being made by Alderman Lopez was that he said that the more that publication of these things happens, these settlements, then it encourages family members to not necessarily encourage encourages bad guys to go out and do stuff and, and, you know, try to get injured, but encourages families after the fact to take advantage. Yes. So I that was Lopez's point. Okay. Looks we're coming up and we've reached the end of our time, but uh, I respectfully disagree uh, with uh, Lopez on that point. Uh, I don't think people are. are at, oh, yes. My son was killed. Now I get to sue the city. I'm sorry. I, I just don't think that's the mindset going on. Now, obviously, there are many people who try to take advantage of the situation uh, and file lawsuit, needless lawsuits. Uh, but. Uh, Clearly, there's some when 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 a lawyer like Jeff Levine uh, goes before the mayor and says, I think we should uh, settle this case. There's evidence that it could really come back to haunt the city in a, in a trial. Anyway, uh, we're getting the message from uh, Google Meet that it's time to wrap this up. And I do whatever Google Meet tells me because they run the world. Uh, so, Dave Glowatz, thank you very much. And before Google Meet kicks us off, tell folks where they can find more of your great work. If listeners would like to hear more audio from the July 21 meeting, I have it at, I'll have it at the um, extended version of uh, the recap of that meeting at Inside Chicago Government, shygov.com. Find us on Facebook at, at um, facebook.com slash inside gov, G-O-V, and on Twitter at C-H-I-G-O-V-T. Very good. Thank you very much, Dave Glass, for coming on the show. Every month he comes on and we do uh, the breakdown of the Chicago City Council. It's really good stuff. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much to you and to Dennis. Uh, and I want to thank Miles Porter and Jim Coogan, our uh, experts on Cubs White Sox, for that earlier discussion. And of course, thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. That would be Dr. D, back home in Alton. They call him the man, the myth, the legend. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 